Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Piki mai kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ahau. This week, we are all about seabirds. We're heading to the Poor Knights Islands off the coast of Whangarei. It's a world-renowned dive site, but for seabird biologists, it's famous as the only place where bullish shearwaters breed. I'm with a team of four others from the Northern New Zealand Seabird Trust, including Karen Baird and James Ross. We're visiting Aurangi Island. It's the second largest island in the group and is a fully protected nature reserve. We've got lots to do, and our first task is to find some sound recorders. We're up on a ridge on the western side of the island, overlooking Nursery Cove and where all the tourist boats go. And we're at a point that we know as Transect 2A. Okay, and so we're going to head from here where? We're going to head along this ridge into the north and uh, pick up the other points on Transect 2. And we have a recorder at each of those points. And what are we going to do when we get there? Essentially we're just changing batteries and SD cards. It's, it's very much just a, a refuelling trip here. What's the purpose of these recorders? What are you trying to record? Well we're, well, we're recording seabird sounds across the island. So these recorders are set up to only play at night, so we're not being recorded now. And the idea is that across the island we can get a matrix of sound. And over time we can perhaps use that as a population measure. Instead of people like us coming out here and counting burrows and walking all over the island, if we have a set of recorders set up, we can judge whether the population's increasing or decreasing. Just by, in a sense, the noise level and the diversity of the sound. Just very much the noise level. Um, And there's a chance, too, that we could pick up some rare birds with these recorders, some some rare seabirds. Such as? Well, New Zealand storm petrel is one that would be particularly interested in turning up here. It's only currently known from Little Barrier. Uh, but we, there are many records of it out at sea off Poor Nights, so this is one site where it just might possibly be, be hiding. It's a beautiful day to be walking on a predator-free island, though. It's stunning, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to describe it to me? Um, vegetation's dense. It's fairly low. Mostly koi-koi on this site, and you can see they're flowering out of their trunks, which is what koi-koi do. It did have predators on it once. It had pigs, didn't it? Yeah, there were pigs. So, so the Maori occupied the site up until about the 1820s, and they had pigs with them, and those pigs stayed on the site after Maori left uh, until about the 1930s when they, were, when they were cleared. So they've clearly had a big impact on the vegetation. We've, we've, some of us have been to Tawhiti Rahi where there weren't pigs, and, uh, and it's quite a different look, to the, look and feel to the vegetation. And this, you can tell, is definitely a seabird island because it's actually quite, in places, quite clear on the forest floor. Yeah, the seabirds, seabirds have no problem at all in clearing patches for themselves. Um, and uh, it seems that they rake every available leaf and twig into their burrows to help with their nests. And, um, 
yeah, it's, it's quite stunning. As we walk along this ridge, we'll get to a couple of areas which are just solid burrows. Oh, we'll have to yeah. step carefully there. Well, not solid burrows, <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> the team on this trip to Aurangi Island in the Poor Knights Group to study bullish shearwaters includes American Abby McBride. Abby's a biologist and an artist, and she's in New Zealand on a Fulbright and National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship. I came to New Zealand to do a project about New Zealand's seabirds, which are the most diverse and endangered seabirds in the world, and particularly the things that people are doing here to help save seabirds. So you call yourself a sketch biologist. Can you explain that? I think I made up the term sketch biologist about three years ago to describe what I do, which is to study plants and animals, sort of by sketching them, um, sort of an artistic lens to look at biology. We're both trying to experience the island in our own different ways. So your way of experiencing it, you whip out a sketchbook and you draw something. So like, what's the last picture you've got in your sketchbook there? So the last picture is just a sort of a landscape shot, a scenery shot of um, this big bluff that's sticking out over the water. I like to pull out the sketchbook whenever there's a just a moment to spare. So it's kind of hit or miss what it happens to be, but in this case it was a scenery shot. What is it about seabirds that interests you? I think what most interests me about seabirds is just the intersection of different habitats and lifestyles that they represent. They nest on islands, they come in from the ocean where humans can't really access very well and they're kind of a bridge between the sea and the land and they function that way ecologically as well so with my project I'm putting an emphasis on art which is kind of I think very appropriate for this topic of seabirds because seabirds are so unseen in general they spend their lives out on the ocean or nesting in these burrows um, on remote coasts or remote islands coming in and out at night when nobody can see them Um, so to sort of bring them to people's attention, which is the first step towards making people care about them, you know, you need to be creative. <laughs> and, um, art is one way to depict what they're doing and, and even just to, to depict the birds themselves and show how, how interesting they are and how beautiful they are and just things that people don't notice, people don't know about. Um, so I think that's one, one major component of my project is just trying to harness art to help these these things that are never seen and to make to bring them visibility. Speaking of visible, there are no bullish shearwaters visible in the forest during the day. They're all out at sea feeding, except for the chicks, which are underground. So do you want to explain what we're doing, Karen? We've come to a point in the middle of the forest. We've stretched out a 30-metre tape. Yep, so what we're doing is we're rechecking a permanent plot that Graham Taylor set up back in 2011. It's just another indicator, really, of, you know, are there more burrows, are there less, less burrows, are they, are they more active or less active, just to give us a, a sort of a, an idea of what's actually happening. So checking the burrows involves Steffi lying on her stomach and sticking her arm up to her armpit. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Down a, a long tunnel wearing gardening gloves in case... Yes, in case, well, one, there's a large adult in there, which is most unlikely, but mostly she's nervous about things like uh, tuataras, which have a very nasty bite, but also centipedes, which are actually poisonous. There's some huge centipedes on this island, aren't there? It's got a bit to say, this one. So, Karen, you've had a lot to do with seabirds. Have you had a lot to do with bullers? 
Not bullies chicks, no. Um, certainly a lot to do with adults at sea. So, yeah, this is the first time that I've actually been involved in actually handing the chickies. And like all seabirds, they're pretty damn cute. <laughs> they're just little balls of fluff, little balls of grey fluff with a beak and a couple of legs. <laughs> they smell so good. Describe how a bull of shearwater chick smells, Karen. <laughs> well, just a very slightly musky sweet scent, which is quite attractive, really. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the ways that the adult can identify its chick. We're just weighing the first bull of shearwater chick that we've had on the strip. And we just got him out of his burrow. And um, so we're taking his weight first and then also standard morphometric measurements such as tarsus and bill and probably see how far the wing has grown and then let him go back to his burrow. <laughs> You're going to put a band on him? We're going to put a band on him. So band is going to be H-42351. And he's good condition, would you yep. say? Good condition. Good condition. Freshly fed, tummy full. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. <laughs> Don't like skinny chicks. What do they eat? What do the parents bring back for them? Well, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it's one of the things that we're interested in, what they're actually eating. But it'll be small fish and plankton. Because they're an interesting shearwater. They don't seem to be a diving shearwater. You know, like Titi dive quite well. But these birds don't seem to dive very well at all. So they quite often wait for fish to drive food to the surface, whether it's small fish or plankton and that kind of thing. In fact, you know, Chris saw some offshore recently feeding with skipjack tuna. So the skipjack tuna would have been driving food that they're eating to the surface and then the shearwaters are taking advantage of that. So one thing we didn't get, which we were hoping was, what well, sort of hoping, maybe a poo, um, because we're interested to take some samples now to see if we can relate that to what they're eating so we can find out more about their diet. And we really are interested to see how dependent they are on these fish workouts. There he goes. <laughs> He's relying on his parents to come back regularly with food before he can actually fledge. And you'll go back to your burrow. Yes, you will. Right now? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Done. Done. Oh, nice to hear the spotless creek chipping away in the background. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's a rare event unless you're on an offshore island like this. What have you sketched today so far, Abby? Um, I've sketched the chick that we pulled out of the burrow and the burrow itself, along with some scenery shots, trees and leaves. <laughs> so what's distinctive about a bullish seawater burrow? The main thing is size, really. Yeah. So, so in the size range, where do bullers sit? Well, they're sort of a medium-sized bird, really. Um, they're not like a big prosolaria from petrel, which is quite a big chunky bird and has to have quite a big hole to get into. Um, and it's a shearwater, so they're quite sort of oval-shaped. And so there's you tend to get that rather than a round shape like a rabbit burrow, you know, you've got a sort of a more of a sort of an oval shape. Yeah. What now? Get organised for this evening. Oh, the night shift. What are we going to be doing on the night shift? Well, so there's some old plots here which were put in by Graham Taylor and he put some data loggers on some adult birds. 
And so we're going to go out and we're going to look for band of birds and hopefully maybe even a band of bird with a data logger attached to a band. Very exciting. If we find one, it will be a very big woohoo moment. <laughs> As night falls, bullish she-orders begin to flock in from the sea. They crash land through the forest before heading to their burrows to feed the chicks. So this morning, we're all out wandering around trying to find banded birds because we just wanted to read their leg bands and see who they are. And then hopefully... Hopefully, maybe somebody might have a data logger on their leg. So, Steffi caught one, Abby caught one. Come here, little guy. Let's have a look at you. This is the second one. So, it's already got a band it's on it. It's already got a band on the right tarsus. And it is H27803. No geolocator, though. No. The holy grail is some geolocators, and if we find one of those, then that would hopefully have some data on it which shows where the bird travels um, during its non-breeding period. And, um, and that sort of information is golden because you, you can study them on the ground, you can study them on islands and close inshore, but it's very difficult to know what they do and they fly across the oceans and so getting that sort of information would be fantastic So what are these birds like to handle James? Uh, the adults are pretty stroppy And they've got quite a sharp hooked beak I gather Yeah they've got, they've got a long long beak with a nasty little sharp hook on the end of it uh, and they're not afraid of using it and they know where to, know where to put it It's about 3.30 in the morning on Aurangi. I'm sitting in the middle of a boulder field. It's a big jumble of huge rocks. And I can't actually see any bullish waters when I turn my lights on. But when I turn my head torch off and just sit there, there's this incredible chorus of birds all hiding in amongst the rocks where they've got their burrows. a bird flying past me and thumping into the microphone. There are so many insects running around. There are big geckos and big skinks running around. There's a giant wetter. A big, big female. If I put her on my hand, she'd cover up a good amount of my hand. She's that big. I've seen a huge centipede crawl past. This is the quiet, intimate little cheeping that a chick's making. Yes, its parent is feeding it.
and that crash was a shearwater crash landing down from the canopy onto the ground. It'll pick itself up and find its way really quickly to its burrow, and it probably won't have very far to go. They seem to be able to land nearby. This is another bird just passing by. came to the wrong place, it's off again. So both of you have spent lots of time out on boats yeah. in the Hareki Gulf, and when you're out there, what do you see in the way of seabirds? Often you see nothing, you don't see any birds for long periods, and then all of a sudden you'll see a few birds, and then maybe a stream of birds flying in a particular direction and then thousands and thousands of birds like a cloud wheeling over a, a fish school or something like that. So, yeah, it can be quite varied. You don't necessarily have to be miles offshore either. That's mm. the really cool thing. I mean, some of the, some of the seabirds that we have in, in the Haraki Gulf uh, spend a lot of their time quite close into shore. And so, you know, people that go out in fishing boats... Um, quite close, might just see this huge flock of fluttering shearwaters on a calm day just sitting there. And that is one of the magic things about the Harrahe Gulf is that you just never know, do you, where you're going to see birds. I, I think what, what amazes people when I talk about the seabirds too is that we see everything from tiny little storm petrels right through to albatross. And, you know, when you say to people, oh, we saw three or four albatross today, and they go, where were you? You know, and I was like, well, we are just out on the Haraki Gulf, and, and you can get that full range of seabirds, of, you know, petrels, skewers, albatross, storm petrels, and shearwaters, often all in the one spot. Yeah, that's so true. And because of that, the whole northeast coast of the North Island has been identified as an important bird area, um, which is... A sort of a, an international, uh, globally important standard that has been set up where they identify areas that are important for b- birds and biodiversity around the world. And for seabirds, that's one of those areas. It's an important bird area, that whole northeast coast. How many species of seabirds? Gosh, well, at least 25. 25 breeding. Yes, 25 breeding. 25 breeding. There are many others that will pass through. Mm. But there's 25 that breed, and I think there's five that only breed in the Haraki Gulf. Mm. So nowhere else in the world. Mm. So what are those ones? Okay. New Zealand storm petrel, bullish shearwater, black petrel, cooked petrel. And the Haraki Gulf little shearwater. And some of those are found only on one island, so... Bullish shearwaters you mentioned, tell us a little bit about those birds. Okay, so bullish shearwaters are only found on the Poor Knights Islands, so that, and there's a, several islands in that group, and we're on Aorangi, which is one of those islands now. And that's a species which really at the turn of the 1900s was regarded as one of the rarest seabirds in the world. People didn't know where they bred. Many of the, the specimens that people knew of came from America, which is where they fly to in, the, in our winter. And, uh, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, the people started saying, well, where does this bird come from? And they, they found a small population at the Poor Knights 
and with better management of the islands, removal of pigs in particular from Aorangi, those numbers built. And now now you see thousands and thousands of bullish seawaters flying around the Hauraki Gulf every summer, and they're, they're almost an iconic bird of this area. Now, do we have any idea how many bullish seawaters there are? That's what we're doing here, actually. That's, that's the whole purpose of our trip, is because... Um, even though this is an iconic bird and, and it's known that it only breeds on the Poor Knights Island, there really hasn't been a thorough population survey of this species. So last year we did a survey at uh, Tafiti Rahi, where we think the population is probably slightly larger than it is at Aorangi, and we came up with a figure of about 137,000 breeding pairs. So that would probably equate to something like 500,000 birds in total if you account for birds that aren't breeding as well. So that's, that just gives you a rough idea. And we, you know, we maybe add another couple of hundred thousand on Aorangi after this survey here. So that sounds like a lot of birds. But let's always remember that they're only on this island group. And, uh, and because of the way they feed and where they feed, they're subject to some really large processes like climate change and the effects of fishing and so on. So we're trying to establish a baseline population survey which we can then use to judge some of those other effects on on that population. The, the critical thing about birds, whether or not they're a small or a large population, is you need to know what the population trend is. Are they going up or are they going down or are they stable? I mean, the previous population surveys were around, well, they weren't really surveys, they were really thumb sucks, mm. maybe two and a half to three million birds. But I think we would be surprised if oh, there were that many. Yeah, I don't think it'll be any, anywhere near that level. The other thing to note with seabirds is that they are quite long-lived. And if you've got a bird that lives for 20 or 30 or 40 years... Um, the effect of slow recruitment into the population is something that you don't pick up for a long time. Mm. You still see lots and lots of birds around, but if the chicks aren't surviving and getting to adulthood and and breeding, then there'll be a gradual decline in the population. So that's why we're focusing quite a bit on the breeding and chick survival in in this study as well. How's the sketching going, Abby? It's going pretty well. They're, um, they're moving around a lot, but they also have periods where they'll sit still, so that helps. <laughs> so when you're sketching, what's different to doing that to, say, grabbing a photo? I think that, for me anyway, the sketching is useful for um, giving a sense of a process that they're in rather than just the moment that they're in, the instant. So, like, a lot of my sketches have little lines around them that aren't you know it's not a strictly realistic representation of what's happening in that very instant but it does give a sense of the movement that it's engaged in looking at the sketches as a viewer you get a little bit of a sense of of what it's like to be looking at the bird definitely is a frozen moment the their movement is really interesting where their legs sit on their body is quite a long way back so they've got this funny scuttling yeah they're very adept as flyers over the ocean and it's actually pretty remarkable that they can function inside the forest i mean hearing them crash land in the canopy and thump onto the ground is a pretty amazing sound (laughs) and then just scuttling around the forest floor 
I was watching a couple slide back into burrows earlier and I was remembering what Karen had said about their burrows being slightly oval. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they just slip inside so quickly. And then you realise why having those legs tucked underneath like that is actually really efficient when you're getting in and out of a burrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when they want to gather up some speed on the forest floor, they certainly can. They can get away from us quite easily. <laughs> We're trying to check their band numbers. <laughs> So what are you guys doing? You're staking out something. Yeah, we're staking out this climbing rock. See that bird over there? He's going straight up vertically up that rock. Oh, wow. Using his claws and wings. And we're trying to catch banded birds so it's an easy place for us to see if they've got bands. And we can then just relatively easily grab them as they're trying to climb the rock. So here they come. So here's one just at my feet. They're incredibly strong birds. So they're using their feet, they're using their beak, they're using their wings to get themselves up that rock. Oh, here comes another one underneath. Coming through. Oh, several. They use their tails as well. See how he's actually holding his tail in against the rock? And they've got four points of contact, including their tail, and their wing-assisted. Yes. Which probably um, <laughs> explains why they're better at rock climbing than we are. Yes, that's true. He was very quick, that one. No, he's not banded either. Oh, here comes three more. No... No. No. What do you like about seabirds, Karen? Hmm. <laughs> What's not to like? They're such cool animals because they can make their living at sea for most of their lives and then they're still able to be incredibly capable on land as we're watching right now. So not many people would realise that a seabird could climb a vertical rock. And it can also catch its food at sea. So, yeah, they're just, just their, I guess, their supreme adaptions to life. I mean, there's not many birds in the world that have evolved to become seabirds, you know, relatively small proportion. I think it's about 360 seabirds. When we talk about seabirds, we're talking about, you know, the tube noses, the true seabirds that actually live at sea and only come to land to breed out of something like 10,000 species of birds. So they're a kind of a, a very special subset of birds. And um, once you start getting to know them a bit, they really do grow on you. There's a, a bit of a rush going on now. Is there one, Ben? Oh, my God. You're not going to believe this. Do you have a picture? I'm not kidding you. Wahoo, a bird with a geolocator. Oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he wasn't even going to grab him. I thought he's got a band. I'll, I'll grab him. <laughs> so, at the last moment, on the last night, mm-hmm. as the first bellbird starts calling, you get the holy grail. So, what needs to happen, James? You just actually just need to take the geolocator off. Take it off, read the band. Yeah. Weigh the bird and get it back on the rock before dawn. After bidding farewell to the birds, 
and the island, the last thing to do is return the treasured geolocator to seabird expert Graham Taylor at the Department of Conservation in Wellington. So bullish shearwaters and bird number H27827, were you ever expecting to see that geologger again? I have to admit, no, I wasn't. So what can you tell me about that bird? Do you know anything about it? Um, yeah, it was a breeding female when it was captured, so it was removed from a burrow um, sitting on an egg back in um, December 2011. Now what's going to happen with that logger? Well, hopefully the manufacturers will be able to download the memory from the chip on the tag. So its battery will have run out. Yes, so the batteries were designed to only last up to five years, and so we're now well past the five-year expiry date. And so I'm, I'm anticipating there will be some information on them. Other tags that have gone past the expiry date have always had data. So it's a wait and see for that particular bird, but you did get quite a few of your other loggers back. So what has that told us about where do bullish shearwaters go? Yeah, well, we learned a lot from the project that we didn't know previously. So I think one of the most surprising things to me was how um, dispersive they are within the New Zealand region during the breeding season. So I guess from my previous observations up north, you know, I was expecting them to stick around the, the Hauraki Gulf area and not really go too far, maybe down to East Cape or somewhere like that. But actually we discovered that they were going a long way south, and particularly during the incubation period. They went all the way down to the area of Banks Peninsula, south of the Chatham Rise, and were foraging in that area. And also some of them were going right out as far as the Louisville Ridge Seamounts, which is well out to the east of the New Zealand EZ. Uh, and a few birds went right across into the central Tasman. So, yeah, quite major movements of birds during that period, much more than we expected. So that's during the breeding season, and then in the non-breeding season, where do they get to? So after they finish breeding, they generally dispersed out into the south-central Pacific, and they seem to have a, a time out there, I guess, when they're just building up their fat reserves for migration, and they stay there for several weeks. And then they all went northwards from there, up in a sort of a, you know, I guess, a north-northwest direction, up past Hawaii to an area called the Empress Seamounts, which is a sort of a, a big underwater um, seamount range sort of at the top end of the northwest Hawaiian chain. And pretty much every bird went to that area, so that looks like that's their major wintering ground. And they stayed there right through to about August, and then in um, August they start going um, eastwards across with the westerly winds that you get in the North Pacific until they reach the coast of California. And then they spend maybe a week to two weeks in that area rebuilding their reserves again for their migration back to New Zealand. And they come right back down through the central um, Pacific, crossing the um, equator, interestingly, in a very similar place to where they went north. So they, all, they do actually produce quite a big figure eight loop, which has you know, been hypothesised for a lot of shearwaters, and they're one of the, the very few that seem to do produce that pattern. Wow, um, so lots of time up off the Empress Seamounts and off California. Yeah, yeah, so the Empress Seamounts is really oceanic. It's way out sort of to the east of Japan over you know, deep um, sort of international waters. And then, yeah, the coast, they got reasonably close to the California current. Um, some birds stayed a little bit further offshore, but most went right in close to the current, which is a well-known area for shearwaters. Lots of our sooty shearwaters also go to the California current, and there's huge amounts of sardines and other species like that for them to feed on in that area. And they seem to have a bulk-up period there and then come straight back to New Zealand um, quite quickly across the Pacific. Thanks, Graham. That was Graham Taylor from DOC. And a big thanks to the Northern New Zealand Seabird Trust, especially Karen Baird, James Ross and Stephanie Ismar, as well as sketch biologist Abby McBride. 
I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 12th of April 2018. You can find us online at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, on the RNZ app, or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Radio Public. There are plenty of other RNZ podcasts to check out as well. William Ray's history podcast Black Sheep is a cracker. We also hang out on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Bye for now. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.